This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, we have a interview from our archive, and then we have PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot, who will talk about the retirement of Len Riggio, the founder of Barnes & Noble. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan, and we have our features editor, Carolyn Juris, to talk with us about them. She's our bestseller guru. Hi, Mark. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Very well, thank you. So you have a wonderful way of, of, of making sense of the bestseller list. You look at trends, you look at things and books and titles, and what are we seeing this week? Uh, well, this week we have something we haven't seen in a little while, which is the release of a movie tie-in edition, two of them actually. This is uh, for Me Before You which is the film adaptation of Jojo Moy's 2013 bestseller. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've got a mass market edition of the movie tie-in at number nine on our list. And on the trade paper list, that book did even better. That's number three. The conventional trade paperback is also selling really well. It's the number seven book in the country. So that sold about, I believe, 18,000 copies this week. Not bad. Not bad. That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, that book has sold something like 650,000 print units, so, <laughs> right, not, okay, so not too shabby. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and then the sequel came out uh, in September of 2015. That's called After You, mm -hmm. uh, and that is still doing well on our list. It's been on the list for 30 weeks. Mm -hmm. Last week, it was at number 18. This week, it moves up two notches to number 16, Right. and it has sold to date uh, more than 46,000 copies, so... And that's that's in hardcover, so right. pretty impressive numbers. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, we've also got on that hardcover list a new number one, and this is the number one book in the country this week, Extreme Prey by John Sanford, mm -hmm. um, you know, best-selling thriller writer. Uh, we do have a review of that book. It was somewhat mixed, mm -hmm. although uh, it's this may ring some bells. There's a Hillary Clinton-like presidential candidate slated for death <laughs> in oh. the... Uh, the 26th Lucas Davenport thriller. Oh, wow. So whether okay. this speaks <laughs> to uh, deep-seated wishes of Mr. Sanford, I can't say. This book follows uh, 2015's Gathering Prey, which uh, this week is number 10 on our mass market list. So okay. clearly Great. people can't get enough of John Sanford. Uh, another new book in fiction. Uh, this is actually the only other debut in fiction this week, Hideaway by Iris Johansson, mm -hmm. uh, another popular writer who uh, we actually starred this book. The basic gist of it, Alfredo Salazar, a Mexican drug lord, seeks to kill 11-year-old Cara Delaney, the daughter of a rival drug gang leader, uh, in Johansson's outstanding 19th Eve Duncan novel. Mm. Uh, this is uh, what our reviewer said about it. Concludes, uh, this first-rate novel of romantic suspense will please Johansson's many fans and newcomers alike. So apparently you don't have to have read the first 18 Eve Duncan novels to enjoy this one. And what a relief. That's great. Someone <laughs> can just jump right in. That's and right. we got a start review. There's a start review of this. So yes. That's good. Yeah. So should we jump to the nonfiction list? Yes, let's. All right. So our top debut is at number three. And this is The Ideal Team Player by Patrick Liancini, who so far sold about uh, just over 7,000 copies. This follows up a book of his 2002. Uh, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which has sold 1.7 million copies wow. uh, today, which is which is 
pretty high. So that looks like this is this is kind of taking up, taking a different look rather than dysfunctions, uh, looking at what is ideal. So uh, that's at number three. At number six, this is the first that I've seen something about this, and this is something that I actually uh, am very happy to see. It's called Deskbound, uh, Standing Up to a Sitting World by Kelly Starrett. And we've seen a lot of self-help guides and physical guides, and this is all about sitting down at the desk and how sitting down might even be worse for our posture, for our health and uh, lifting heavy weights. So um, this is kind of pretty, pretty amazing. And I want to go out and get a copy of it and, and get a standing desk as and well. get a standing desk. Yes, exactly. So many people I know who have standing desks swear by them. So that's at number number six. And then we have at number 10, we've got a book that started off as a blog, The Minimalist Baker's Everyday Cooking, 101 Entirely Plant-Based, Mostly Gluten-Free, Easy and Delicious Recipes by Dana Schultz. And these are all vegan recipes that require, as it says, 10 ingredients or less, one bowl, one pot, or 30 minutes or less to prepare. So for the uh, the, the vegan baker out there, this is kind of a boom. Great. And I believe she's got a pretty good uh, social following, many followers on Instagram, especially for the beauty shots of what she cooks. Oh, nice. Okay, good. And then after that, we have a book by uh, Slate founder, Michael Kinsley, Old Age, A Beginner's Guide. Uh, and this is a collection of essays. And in this, among other things, he, he uh, talks about coming to terms with being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Oh, I didn't know that. So um, this is what we say in our in our review. He said, how a su- uh, Kinsley's superb prose and well-judged tone, both frustrated and hopeful for the future, make this a valuable book for anyone interested in exploring ideas around life, death, and legacy. So that's at number 15. And then we have down the line. So we talked about, I've been seeing a lot of books almost every week, dieting and especially dealing with blood sugar diet. And this is the eight week blood sugar diet, how to beat diabetes fast by Michael Mosley. We don't have a review of this, but the uh, press material says that the groundbreaking guide to defeating diabetes without drugs, uh, including a step-by-step diet plan recipes and the science behind why this program works. He himself is the best-selling author of the Fast Diet series. So, And that's at number 25. Great. A uh, couple more books on that list. It was yeah. a good week for nonfiction. Just above that at 24 is Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? by, I believe he's a zoologist, uh, Franz de Waal. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is interesting because we've seen a, a few science books recently do very well. We've got a, from a few weeks ago, Lab Girl by Hope Jaron, which is mm. a, kind of a memoir about her life in science. Um, to date, she's still pretty young, so she's got a ways to go. Right. But that book has sold more than 15,000 copies in hardcover, which is great. This week, it's up five notches to number 13. Oh, fantastic. So, uh, good year for science. Yeah. 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 And then you have a little something different on the list. Got a little something different. So, uh, coloring books are, are not news to anyone who's been paying attention, but we don't always see them, uh, on the hardcover list. There's a book at, uh, number 22 called Wild About Cats. This is a coloring book and it is from a Canadian publisher. Well, not so much a publisher. They're called Newborn Media. And they're a Canadian company that specializes in CDs and uh, digital music. Oh, and this is a new side project uh, to kind of capitalize on the coloring book trend. So their Color With Music series pairs coloring books with CD inserts that Mm -hmm. are intended for stress relief. Oh. So they're cutting right to the chase there. A lot of the coloring books do talk about, you know, color your way to calm, things like that. Uh, but this one is is giving you a little extra help with the uh, relaxing music. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Um, and over on the trade paper list, we've got a couple of very yeah. different coloring books. Uh, at number 15, we have The World of Debbie Maycomber. So this is a coloring book based on the mega-selling uh, romantic novelist. So these are characters? I I am not sure. I honestly have not seen the inside of it, yeah. but it is. Uh, these are... Definitely pages based on themes in her books. Right. Wow. And then just below that is a book that uh, whose title I unfortunately cannot say on the radio, but it <laughs> is uh, Memos to Blank People. Okay. The, uh, the missing word is an adjective starting with S. Oh, okay. So that gives you some idea, I think. Uh, this yeah. is actually self-published, and we've seen this a lot. There have been a few books. I don't think I see one... Today, there's another one that uh, uses the F word, another self-published 
book that's kind of cheeky. And I guess the idea is you're getting out your aggression through coloring. So we have, so one coloring book that's getting out the aggression. The other one is calming. That's so right. So a little bit for something every for, temperament. Something for everybody. Definitely. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. I'm Mark Rotella and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up is our interview from the archive. We'll be right back. I'm Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Dookie Hong and Matt Rodbard in the office, and their new book is Koreatown. Hello, Dookie. Hello, Matt. What's up? So, hey. so glad you could join Thanks, us. man. It's really an honor to be here. I, I'm thrilled that you're on the show. This is a great cookbook. And uh, so, and I also want you to know, I think I just told you, uh, that your cookbook is now, uh, will be number 35 in general nonfiction and number two on our cookbook bestseller list, PW's oh. cookbook bestseller list. That's so, so incredible to hear that. Korean food. Well, I remember talking with you uh, before the book was even published. And uh, um, so so let's talk talk a little bit about the book. um, And then I want to talk about where the book stands with there's you seem to be writing a wave of 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 Korean food and Korean cookbooks uh, in American culture right now. But let's just start. Why Koreatown? So for me as a journalist, um, it's just such a rich topic. I, I'm not Korean. Dookie Hong is the, the co-Korean on the, the token project. Korean guy on the project. But, uh, and we, we couldn't do it without each other. That's the, that the beauty of the project. But for me as a journalist on the piece, on, on the project, it was really um, such a rich topic to cover because it hadn't been covered from that point of view. It's the first cookbook written from the perspective of Koreatown. It's not um, written from... Uh, a YouTube studio. Mm-hmm. It's not written from um, a celebrity travelogue of Korea. It's written from Koreatown. And f- to write the book, we had to travel. We traveled all over the United States. Uh, you know, we're based in New York City, but we went to Los Angeles like six times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were on Delta like every other month, going to uh, going to the Koreatown in in LA, which is the biggest. But we were also mm-hmm. going to smaller Koreatowns in Duluth, Georgia, in Philadelphia, in Washington D.C which is a little larger, San Francisco. And we were there to to record and to observe Korean food and culture. So Dookie is, mm-hmm. is a restaurateur. Uh, you uh, have a restaurant in, if I'm not mistaken, Koreatown in uh, New York City. Yeah, no, I, I live it and breathe it uh, and talk about it every day. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, we, we do have a, a restaurant. It's called Pekton, New York City on 32nd and 5th. Um, and it's a Korean barbecue restaurant that we just try to do it a little bit. Nothing different. We just try to do it a little bit better and care a little bit more. Uh, better quality meat better service and i think people really we've gotten uh, embraced by the industry and we've uh, yeah just been a product of people's mm-hmm. well so what does koreatown mean to you what is koreatown um uh i, I mean to me it's it's like little italy once yeah. was yeah. where there's yeah. uh a there was at one point uh italians lived in the neighborhood mm-hmm. but now it's just become a tourist destination mm-hmm. for for uh, uh for people eating uh, italian food wanting to go out um yeah. what about what tell me about the koreatowns uh throughout either in new york city mm-hmm. or, or or throughout the country i mean 100 i think uh coast um you know matt touched upon it new york and la is probably the biggest one or the most well known um and like you said about little italy maybe we're kind of in that direction i mean it's great maybe when i started going to koreatown out here um i write about it in the intro of the book of my love-hate relationship with koreatown um it was that when i first started it was just koreans like nobody knew about 32nd street between 6th and broadway um it was always just a fifth and sixth or whatever it is um but now you see probably more non-korean people on Mm k-town than at least in new york city and you can see it in la too because like you said it's it's people know about it now um Mm -hmm. it's a spot that you can go at uh 6 p.m and 6 a.m and you'll see uh the same live energy um it's it's really unique there's no place like it i think you know during our travels we learned a lot in going to a, a city like Atlanta and embracing their Koreatown which is like not touched you know it's kind of still what New York or LA was 10-15 years ago you know 
So could you tell me a little bit about, for instance, Atlanta, Koreatown? Mm. Uh, I, I mean, is it the same sensibilities, the same uh, food? Um, I say in New York or L.A.? Um, I would say it's closer to. There's nothing like New York. I mean, I'm, I'm from, we're from New York, so sure. I'm not biased. But um, <laughs> New York feels 32nd Street feels like Seoul. I think mm-hmm. he. Um, it's tall. It's hus- it's bustling. You go there on Friday, 11 p.m. Um, it's the energy is unmatched in the country. I think Atlanta is very similar to LA in the fact that um, it's good food. It's very good food. Um, it's kind of uh, spread out in, mm-hmm. in strip malls and. Um, separate, but that Koreatown is so it's it's huge. It's yeah. burgeoning. It's yeah. actually the fastest growing Koreatown in America. It's not actually Atlanta. It's Duluth, Georgia, which is mm-hmm. twenty miles north of Atlanta. Oh wow! Um, so for various reasons, it's, people are, are flocking there. It could be the weather. It could be cheap land. You know, mm-hmm. New York City is becoming incredibly expensive. But you find these restaurants that are popping up in abandoned shopping malls and we write about in Koreatown our experience in these restaurants where they're cooking this food that's very much for Koreans by Koreans mm-hmm. um, but in a in a area that isn't the stereotypical Koreatown in New York it's it's very different it looks very different it yeah. feels very different so I and I know I just talked about little Italy's but uh, uh, K- Koreans are known to be the Italians of uh, Asia uh, in, for their yeah. love of food. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Um, <laughs> That's a good one. We have a rich history. I mean, even even just to even go on to the ingredients, our food takes time, and I think um, you know talk about Italian. I'm not Italian, but I have some really... Um, but you have friends. I have friends Italian. that are yeah. Italian, and the way they talk about food, like you just said, is the way Koreans talk about their food. Like, mm. you'll be eating a meal, and the topic of conversation is food. It's like... Or drinking. or So, um, food is a big part of, of what we do. Um, it's a social thing. It's a food. It's just a delicious... It's a sustenance thing, obviously, but it's it's an event. You know? Mike, let's talk about garlic. <laughs> Let's there is about, there is some garlic yeah. in Korean food. I mean, I've cooked a lot of Italian food in my past, but it is garlic is probably used more prevalently in Korean cooking. I mean, it is in everything, and Koreans actually seek out good garlic. And I'm mm-hmm. sure in Italian markets, good garlic is a thing versus just the the the, the dried out garlic that you right. find in the supermarket. But uh, it's bold flavors, you know. Yeah, I think there's the same kind of similarity. At least somebody that's been in the culinary industry as as a as a chef myself. Um, you see the same, you know, Koreans have their grandma cooking. And then when you think about Italian, I think about grandma cooking. Mm-hmm. And then you do have those guys that are kind of doing the modern takes. And you have the same guys that are doing the modern takes. I think there's a very uh, evident parallel between mm-hmm. Italian cooking and yeah. Korean cooking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least right now where, where we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Matt, I'm going to ask you yeah. this because you're not just a journalist. You're the executive editor, if I'm not mistaken, at Food Republic. I was. I was a contributing editor. I'm, I'm, I was at Food Republic for four years, but now I'm a contributing editor, so I'm doing more freelance. But yeah. Well, you're still still yeah. out there writing about yeah. food. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the popularity of Korean food these days. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, you've, 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 you've written this book um, with Dookie, and, but you also are well aware of what is popular, what what are the growing trends? Why, why Korean? Why is Korean right now? I think we'll shop. It, it is a now moment. Um, it is a tomorrow moment as well. And I think with our book, uh, we're going to open up a lot of conversations. But really, it's Asian food. It starts with that. Asian food is now what people want to read about in the cookbook world. I think you're seeing so many great releases. It started maybe five years ago with Momofuku, and you've got Pak Pak. You see some of the bestsellers are... Our, uh, our Asian books, but people really are gravitating towards those flavors. Um, people, from various reasons, it's interesting, it's healthier, it's it's not, it's dairy-free, it's gluten-free. There's a lot of reasons you cook Asian, but I think people now are thinking about Asian food in regions. It's not just Chinese food. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about Yunnanese cuisine in Sichuan. You're talking about Thailand and breaking up north versus south, and Pak Pak did such a great job of, of breaking that down. You've got Japanese izakaya, Japanese arabata. You've got all these different books that focus Focus on the on the different elements of Asian cooking. Uh, Korean food hasn't really had that moment with in the, in the in letters. Really, it, it it's had these celebrity chefs doing these books. But with our book, we think we we've really drilled down into these specific dishes that you'll find at restaurants. So you'll have, for example, a restaurant that does samgyetang, which is this ginseng chicken soup. Um, and you, we we think that Americans will love that dish. I mean, mm-hmm. it is like the most incredible. 
comforting dish, um, mild. It's not the kimchi chigae, the mm-hmm. kimchi stew. It's very different. That's just one example of many in, that we write about in the book where we're really drilling down into specifics. We're not generalizing the cuisine. And I think uh, cookbook buyers are wanting, are, are seeking that specification, that speciality. I mean, are you seeing that yourself as an editor? Oh, completely, yeah. I, I mean, just uh, coming up on, on the heels of this book yeah. are, well, there was Mong Chi, who last yep. year uh, was with her book, yeah. came out with her book. Uh, and But I'm seeing following up in the next season or so, I'm seeing two, three, four more mm-hmm. uh, Korean cookbooks. Mm-hmm. So this is, I mean, it's all coming out of good time it and, is and good. i think you're absolutely right about uh um and it's not just korean but it's it's asian but people are are, are seeing that there's more to asian than just pan asian or, yeah. or chinese cooking there yeah. there you know there's many regions of of china as there are and i'll stop with the italian references yeah. the same as that but they're in the same with france and yeah. and uh so I'm, I'm definitely seeing that but but there is something about Korea. So mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the recipes. How mm-hmm. are the recipes, do you think, perceived by Americans? I mean, I almost think that, uh, um, and perhaps this is true the way Americans think of many Asian recipes, that they're maybe too complex. Mm. Ooh, that's a good question. We, Duke, you want to take that one? Yeah, I think um, it is. It's First of all, it's language that you're not used to. So mm-hmm. when I say gochujang to you, you don't have anything popping up in your head. It's the education process mm-hmm. also. I think Korean food is a little bit different, and Matt touches upon it a lot, is that maybe different than Thai cooking. At least on the pantry end, we have a great pantry section that um, kind of, it's really simple. And I, I read it too, and I was like, oh, even as a Korean, mm-hmm. it's really simple. Um, and, you know, Korean food is great because it's based on changs, which are like these fermented soybean paste. And that's kind of like the foundation of mm-hmm. our cooking. Soy sauce, soybean paste, chili paste. Um, and you have those three or four ingredients, and it branches off into hundreds of dishes. Mm-hmm. I would say a little bit different than Thai, where you need a new pantry. You know, you can't mm-hmm. substitute galangal. You can't substitute lemongrass. You can't substitute uh, a good fish sauce and, mm-hmm. and a lot of these other uh, tamarind, a mm-hmm. lot of these ingredients that are really the basis of Thai food. And you can't substitute it. Then it's just not Thai food. Mm-hmm. I think Korean food, um, it doesn't it doesn't really make you go clear out your pantry. It's like, hey, just buy two or three of these things and you can... I mean, we're talking about the larder is sesame oil, garlic, ginger, scallions, mm-hmm. soy sauce. You know, it's, it's as you're saying, it's Which not is a so common theme in a lot of uh, Asian cuisine. So you have, you're going to have your ginger, garlic, uh, sesame oil, soy sauce, mm-hmm. you know, and then to make Korean food, you just need a couple of these pastes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you make Thai food, just buy lemongrass and the XYZ. Um, Chinese food, just get some Szechuan, whatever. But the base of it, of all Asian cuisines, is like yeah. ginger, the mm-hmm. garlic. The, yeah. The, the, and in uh, terms of recipe development, too, so to answer that part of the question, which mm-hmm. is the complexity of Korean food, yes, there is a, it is perceived as being complex. And it's true. There are dishes that take months of fermentation. I mean, beju kimchi, the cabbage kimchi can age for a year. And that's a very, it takes patience and time. Uh, but really, uh, a lot of this cooking is one-pot cooking. You know, the mm-hmm. soups are nice. made in one pot with potential with a stock that takes uh, 20 minutes to make. You put that in and you're making soup in uh, in 30 minutes. It's not the long boils and the long braises. So that's that's what we try to do in, with the book. We're, we're kind of breaking down in the head notes um, the cooking technique and, and really trying to simplify these concepts that maybe have been written about in other recipes or other books is a little bit more complex. Yeah, and these recipes, how we approach them is the same. You're right. We're going to have kimchi takes like you said, anywhere from weeks to months to years. Um, but we have a quick kimchi recipe that mm-hmm. you can make. Like if I bought ingredients right now, I can have it ready for you in dinner. Like 20 minutes, not even. So, so it's a quick pickle. It's a quick yeah. pickle. So right. for us, we wanted to, and how we approached even the writing, the, the photography, um, and the recipes is very similar. Like, hey, if you're going to present it to your friends, we're not experienced. I mean, he has he's experienced in the journalism world and whatnot. But for Faking me, it. Yeah, for me. <laughs> totally. For me, too. I've never, you know, I've never worked in a studio and, and made 20 dishes and, like, all these beauty shots so we were just like alright if we're going to cook for our friends and we're going to make a quick recipe for my friends yeah. what would I do eliminate all the fuss mm-hmm. you know get a pot 
put these ingredients in, simmer for 20 minutes, and you yeah. have a meal. So, and um, not just any meal, the best yeah, meal. Yeah, and not exactly. And, and we didn't, to, to say that, we didn't compromise anything, too. No. It wasn't like, oh, like substitute gochujang with X. No, if you substitute gochujang with something else, it's not Korean food. Yeah. Um, so It's like sambal. A lot of times people will substitute mm-hmm. sambal with gochujang. And what, and so explain to us the Sambal is uh, like difference. a Thai chili uh, paste. Thai Unfermented. Chili sauce. Yeah, so... For us, we don't. There's no compromise on on yeah. any of it, but we do capture the essence of every dish. Where when you eat it, you can order it at a restaurant and have the same. Mm. It'll have the mm-hmm. same feel. Right, yeah. right. We're gonna take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Dookie Hong and Matt Rodbard, authors of Koreatown. And uh, we're having a wonderful conversation yeah. about food, about Korean food. Italian and food. Uh, <laughs> yeah, some Italian food <laughs> yeah. in there. Um, in your restaurant. So, so Dookie, you, you, as we've, we've, we've discussed, you own a restaurant in uh, Koreatown, uh, New York City. It's mm-hmm. also a place where I've eaten. It's also a place where I go for karaoke. Uh, <laughs> tell us how you got there. Tell us your culinary background and how you ended up opening a restaurant. Yeah, so Koreatown was probably the last place I would have ever thought I, I would I would be cooking. Um, I got an opportunity when I was super young, uh, when I was 15, to cook for a chef, uh, Aaron Sanchez, um, in his Mexican uh, uh, restaurant in Tribeca called Centrico. And from there, it was just exciting. I mean, it's a 15-year-old kid in a... In, a kitchen full of grown men and they're, everyone's cooler than you. Uh, everyone's more uh, badass than you. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. So I felt part of a fraternity. It felt cool. So um, I did that for two years. Uh, chef told me to go to culinary school, uh, that I need formal education. Um, I disagreed with him. And so I just, you know, I listened to Chef after culinary school. Um, I went to Momofuku. Uh, before Momofuku was Momofuku. Um, I like to say, or at least before, before uh, Chef Chang was, uh, before David Chang was who he is now. Right. Um, and I learned an immense amount. I mean, I, I joke around. I thought David Chang was a Korean chef, um, like <laughs> Korean food chef. I always right. wanted to do Korean food. That was not something that was a, a dilemma for me. You always wanted to do Korean. I did. I mean, yeah. I, I've, my dad said something to me super early on. And, and when I was cooking, he was like, you know, talking about Italian, going back to Italian food, if you had the best bowl of i don't know a bucatini right and you you're done eating it and, the, and you're like may, may i meet the chef and this you know chinese guy comes out how would you feel you know mm. is it is it politically correct probably not but you'd be like oh that's not better than my mom so i was you know my dad said the same thing he's like you can make the best french food all day but if you come out you know there's going to be that disconnect and for me luckily i like to cook food that i eat um and um, so, but I did, yeah, I did the Momofuku thing um, for a year. Um, learned an incredible amount. The culture there is incredible, and I still adopt, and I still kind of take that Momofuku feel even in my food um, that I create. Um, after that, I got an opportunity to work at Fine Dining at uh, John George's for um, uh, for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and that was a totally different experience. The whole fine dining uh, pursuit of perfection, um, quality, quality, quality. Um, it was just a different world. Um, and after that, I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Um, I want to cook Korean food now. Like I've, after that, it was probably like seven years into cooking. Um, I was like, I need to, I'm done learning this technique, that t- technique. French food is great, uh, but I need to go back to the food that I like eating. So mm-hmm. um, slowly but surely, I, I, I you know, went back to kind of Korean food and you know, getting comfortable with the ingredients. And then... I feel like a Korean barbecue restaurant is like uh, having a good burger joint in America. Like you, you need a good, we, you know, I work for circle hospitality group and they, we are a little tag is that we want to be the premier Korean hospitality group in New York to have that. You can't not have a good Korean barbecue mm-hmm. restaurant. We felt like, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like, uh, the Teresa group, um, not having a good 
pasta or not, right. not having a good right. bowl of XYZ, right? So um, we really focused on it. We knew we weren't doing anything different. We did want to be in K-Town for the kind of the cultural respect to our generation, mm-hmm. but also kind of signify that there's a new generation of, of Korean cooks, Korean restaurateurs coming along. So, yeah, so if you walk into our restaurant, it's very uh, similar in the fact that it's Korean barbecue, but it's kind of different in the mm-hmm. way we approach service and the food. So with your cooking and also with the cookbook, I I, 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 mean, I gathered from what I looked, it's traditional Korean food. But were there any nods made to the American palate or mm-hmm. in your experience, uh, either, either Matt and putting this together and seeing what would be palatable or, or at least might be interesting to Americans or for you, Dookie, who has been trained obviously uh, you know from a, a, you know a very wide variety of of chefs i mean including jean george mm-hmm. which is you know french but but also uh, you know you belong to the hospitality yeah. you know you're part of the hospitality group it's a way of presenting w- what has changed or what did you do differently if at all in your restaurants and in the cookbook so i think in terms of uh kind of catering to the american palate i mean we're we're americans you know it's not a book from korea so for example our kimchi bokumbap which is kimchi fried rice when we were developing it, we are like, we don't want to do a traditional kimchi bokumbap. We want to put something in it that really feels like what we want to eat all the time. And, and what is that? Describe to us what that, that, that single thing would be bacon, Mike. And bacon butter. Yeah. and right. butter. So right. we just kept adding bacon to the recipe. We wanted to have bacon. We wanted to really have a lot of bacon in it. I mean, the essence right. of bacon needed to be in every bite. So what we did was we just kept adding more bacon. But also a genius of Dookie was to add butter, but not just just slabs of butter. It was uh, gochujang butter. Yeah, we smoked it. I mean, I love, I love kind of going back to, I think this, this, the question is more about uh, it's traditional, but is it authentic? And the way we approached our recipes um, we didn't care. We were really like, um, we're not, we're Americans, as Matt mm-hmm. said. I grew up eating just as much as I ate Korean food at home. I ate burgers, fries, pizza all day. And fried chicken is my jam. Like, I, <laughs> nobody touches me on Sutton fried chicken. Um, so I can't, we can't be authentic. There's no way. Well, that this word book, is not really in right, the book. This book is not authentic for. just because we're, we're, first of all, we're covering the Korean food in America. Yeah. You know, Korean food in Korea is is different than in LA. LA is different than New York. New York to Georgia, yeah. so um, we couldn't we couldn't stress about it because once we started stressing about it, yeah. then we could probably get nothing done. Um, and you know, the recipe he's talking about is a perfect example of that. It's kimchi fried rice. When you eat it, when Koreans eat it, when Americans eat it, okay, oh yeah, I definitely taste the kimchi and it's the fried rice. I'm used to eating it, but then we just wanted to be like, what's super tasty super delicious I think bacon is freaking awesome and yeah. you can't go wrong if you add bacon and butter to something it's kind of like cheating <laughs> yeah you know, and, but, um, but also you know we have this our last section in the book is called respect and it's our guest recipe sh- section so Dookie did 85 recipes on his own when we developed in the kitchen but the respect section was we asked a lot of our friends in the, in the chef community to do a recipe that wasn't the typical fusion wasn't just a kimchi taco or a, a, a spin and Korean fried chicken. Mm, right. So we had like a Mandacoan do Korean fried broccoli, which is like really plays it. Mandacoan is the chef at Dirt Candy in New York, right. which is a really great vegetarian restaurant. Which is on her menu. Which yeah. is on her menu. So yeah. she did that. You know, we have Danny Bowen doing solantang, which is a very traditional uh, Korean bone broth, but he's using uh, smoked brisket and uni in it. So it's kind it's of... like a pastrami now. Yeah. I think it was a, a nod to like New York. Right. So, so cool. Yeah. So rather than, than a fusion of like uh, uh, mixing Korean with... <laughs> With Mexican, right. what they've done is taken a traditional uh, Korean recipe mm-hmm. and added their own twist to it. I mean, it's really respecting the. I mean, the the title is uh, the chapter of the the title chapter is named perfectly. Is that they really respect the Korean ingredient? It's not right. oh crap, this is an Italian. All right, let me add a chili paste. All right, now it's Korean. Yeah. Um, they're very well composed, and we picked. We had a lot more than twenty recipes. But yeah, we, we, we had to edit 20. it down, but we have like mm-hmm. a John, John and Vinny from Animal in Los Angeles, uh, mm-hmm. Stuart Brioza from Staper Provisions. We have uh, Eric Repair. Uh, Danny Bowen. I mean, we have a really nice list of, and a very diverse uh, list of chefs. But all of them uh, really love Korean food, mm. oh. and yeah. and it's kind of this secret that chefs go to Koreatown at the end of the shift, and it's not because they love Korean food; it's because Korean Town is open. I know? mean, they're not eating their food for sure when no. they end the shift. You know, for me, I don't eat at Koreatown. Um, I just can't. You well, know? you can't. I think but it's most, for them too. Like most me, chefs or, go. But um, 
Yeah, and and uh, we mentioned it at our restaurant. We it's so awesome for me. It's because these like guys that you read about that you like respect to you know are literally coming to your house you don't even have to go to them you know right. they come here with their crew and we just like i cook for them and then i get to pick their brains so for me it's like a win-win like if i didn't even get paid from the restaurant i'd be okay like and i keep joking about that <laughs> but i'm not lying because <laughs> when the when's the last time you had you know um uh, chef Eric Rupert come into your restaurant when's the last time you had Corey Lee Chef Corey Lee of Benu right. San Francisco come and just eat and you know you just like bother him and mm-hmm. um, that experience or that ability to do that um, I think our book is really cool in the way that I th- that's my favorite uh, section of the whole <laughs> book you know the recipes are great the stories are incredible but the fact that all these chefs that you're like these are your heroes and your idols. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we love Koreatown. We know a Koreatown. Yeah. Um, and we cool. love Korean food, so here's our recipe. Mm-hmm. So it's great. And how would you talk about other than these 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 guest chefs uh, in in the book? The differences between Korean food in New York, say, and Atlanta, say, mm. St. Louis or mm. Los Angeles. Mm. I think California. We've both admitted uh, that it's the best. Korean food in America. Korean food in America. We didn't say the best Korean town. No, but best Korean in America. It, it has a lot to do with uh, California has great produce. Mm-hmm. Right. It has the best produce in the country. It's a perpetual growing season. Right. And, and beef is very, very good there as well. So just putting those two elements together, mm-hmm. uh, couple that with um, cheaper real estate so you don't have the the pressure of, of margins, you know, these richer thin margins. Um, you still have small margins, but they're not as small in LA. And I think you've got the best quality restaurant but that's Koreatown is not just about the food quality I mean right. there's a lot of other reasons we talked about mm-hmm. you know Atlanta though you'll find some southern twists here and there you know you'll find restaurants that do a little southern barbecue like what American style barbecue this right. great restaurant called Heirloom uh, barbecue does uh, their style of Korean barbecue but it's really slow and slow over yeah, wood yeah. Yeah. so you'll see those little southern yeah our friends Cody and Chian, uh, Chian run that but it's American barbecue if nobody said that the rub that they're using, the driver, uh, spices that they're using, or the kimchi slaw was Korean products, like soybean paste, and then they rub it with like a Korean chili paste. You would not know, because when you eat the brisket, you're like, oh, this is just American Southern uh, delicious. barbecue. Yeah, delicious. So when you go back into the kitchen, like, hey, Cody, what are you using? Oh, I use tenjang, Korean soybean paste. And like, oh, that's so cool, you know? And um, Miso, he uses, he puts miso yeah. into, he injects yeah. it. With and it's just like, needle. this is another way like it, that could only happen right. in Georgia oh know? interesting oh that's great now I just want to do a little bit of backtracking I've been wanting to mm-hmm. ask you how did you two come together um, how, was it through your your, your, your days of a journey Tinder, Tinder. totally dude okay we're, so Tinder we're both rivaling yeah. I'm married I'm very I'm, I'm married and <laughs> Tinder yeah. so and I want to talk a little bit about the the concept of the book and the production of it and let's yeah, talk so, about that so how you two met and then let's put this book together well we met uh, through a small guidebook project which I was leading and I was mm-hmm. a judge and it was a um, kind of like Michelin guide there are a number of judges and we were rating Korean restaurants and I had to right. go to 78 Korean restaurants um and we met because we both were judges, and we connected over our shared love of the cuisine and also right. just mm-hmm. writing about it and talking about it obsessively. But um, the production of the book, it's a good question. We really, when we sold the book, uh, our proposal was very specific. And with that, uh, not everyone bought it. It's just the way it goes. And this is almost three years ago. And as you noted earlier in the conversation, the Korean food has changed since then. But we really wanted the book to be... Um, Reportage, documentary. Those are the words we used. We wanted to tell real stories from Koreatown. We didn't want to go into a, a, a photo studio with Spotify humming in the background and air conditioning and do like 75 photos in three days and the way most cookbooks are produced. We rejected that notion. Mm. Um, with that, be, the, the actual production became very difficult. Um, we had to travel. We had to put all of our advance money into the actual production to shooting. Uh, but with that, we really feel strongly that we've captured a really unique style of cookbook writing. And I think, you know, I never set out to be a cookbook writer. It's not really what I, I write about food and I write about culture, music, art, all sorts of things. But uh, writing about food and, and, and doing a long form text uh, about Korean food and calling it a cookbook, but not really doing a cookbook um, is in, makes me really proud. And I have to give credit to Francis Lamb at Clarkson Potter for buying the book and right. from day one saying, you know, Matt and Dookie, 
you guys can bring this photographer along who, you know, isn't a well-known photographer and you guys can go and travel and it's, we feel really lucky that we're in his hands. Yeah. I mean, every, the hope, I mean, now kind of looking back on the production process, I mean, to begin it, um, this was all Matt's idea. So people don't understand that, um, because I'm Korean. So they're like, Oh, it's your Koreatown idea. Let's actually Matt drew up the whole proposal so when i met him he had the whole idea down yes it tweaked here and there we added the guest recipes blah 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 but um his love for korean food and his friend he writes about in an intro kind of started that i kind of got went along for the ride for me i was attracted to it because it wasn't um any anything any korean book out there it wasn't like Dookie's 101 Recipes, it was, it was really about the people, the culture. Mm. I liked that it wasn't so food-focused, uh, which is kind of weird from, from me because I, <laughs> I should be. Mm-hmm. But I love the fact that he was like, oh, I want to uh, you know, really showcase the people, the story, right. the cool stories of Koreatown. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, our, our, we, had, uh, we had a crazy team just kind of form mm-hmm. around it, and we were all willing to go all in. We were just like, mm-hmm. it takes all in because there's no cookbook like that yeah it did and you know we we really struggled at times with i mean are we doing the right thing here i mean we, mm-hmm. there, we're not seeing a lot of books that, that that are like this out in the marketplace we we are seeing a lot of great books beautiful books like beautiful books but they're studio books mm, right and um no they're selling well you know these books yeah. do well and we're hoping that you know, we have the right people on our production side who are going to get our, our vision, and it all really came together. Right. And we've been really fortunate to have some really stop, nice. Stop bashing on studio books, Hattie. Well, I <laughs> kind of want to. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, it's because, and, and you know, just going back to Francis too. He really gave, and this was actually his first book that he yeah he, he bought he bought yeah. um, when he as he joined. Oh, I didn't realize Potter. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so this uh, it says a lot about his trust in us because we're not we're not Mario Batali. We're not yeah. a, a proven. Uh, team right so. I, and I think mm-hmm. what's wonderful uh, as far as cookbook stories go I mean he, it, it's really hard as a cookbook author I mean I know I've seen this all the time to break out when you have so many celebrity mm-hmm. TV chefs out there producing completely fine and good cookbooks but it's uh it's the books that have perhaps more of a cultural bent as yours does that that when it gets kind of above the den it's a real it's a real Mm. achievement and you know packaging too is a really important key to this and and francis comes from a magazine background i come from a magazine and web background right so and you when you think about books in terms of packaging you know you look at rice noodle fish which is a great book uh, about japan by uh matt golding who's also a former magazine editor i think this is the style of cookbook that a lot of people are drawn towards it's not just recipe 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 circle plate circle plate circle plate photo you know it's actually we have sidebars we have energy you know right. sa- same with uh, uh lucky peaches 101 easy asian recipes that yeah, was right. a book that has packaging and i think i hope if we do another project we can continue the style of cookbook writing mm-hmm. where it's you're getting every page is going to have a little bit of a, a new uh, a twist or a turn and it's not going to be monotonous that's that would have made me feel really bad if people thought this book is monotonous well it sounds like you two are off to a pretty pretty darn good start thank you thank you so much we've been talking with dookie hong and matt rodbard you can find their cookbook koreatown in stores right now guys thanks so much for joining mike thank you for having thank us so much. so great i'm mark rotella and this is publishers weekly radio next up pw editorial director jim milliot talks about barnes and noble and the retirement of founder len riggio so stay tuned Hi, I'm Benedict Tracker. I'm the author of the Alex Ferris series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about the retirement of Len Riggio, the founder, of course, of Barnes & Noble. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good, good. Thanks. So this is kind of a, this is a big thing. I mean, this is something he started, what, back in 1965? Yep. He uh, founded uh, Barnes & Noble with one college bookstore uh, back in 65, as you say, uh, by NYU down in, in New York City. And he built it to, you know, the largest bricks and mortar bookstore retail chain in, in the country. And back when he was starting it, we didn't have to call it bricks and mortar because there was no online <laughs> retailer. There was no Amazon. And this is something he started. I, I... 
in order to pay for his own college tuition. That's why he got into it. How right did away. he build it? Well, right away, he really liked it. I mean, he yeah. sent a letter out to uh, the booksellers of BNN and said, you know, he never had a bad day as a bookseller. And it was something he really took to. But it was also, I mean, he kind of downplays it uh, a bit. He's really a, a really good retailer and a smart yeah. businessman, even right. though he never set out to be a businessman. Right. Yeah. And he was always notorious for... Uh, giving few interviews if any <laughs> yeah he was a little close to the vest um but what happened was and you know how did he really get into the the big leagues was in uh 1998 or seven around there he bought dalton mm. yeah i'm sorry sorry it was 1986 dalton at the time those of you old enough to remember was i remember <laughs> was one of the biggest bookstore chains and it had a lot of it had almost 800 mall stores at the time he bought it and it had more than double his revenues right so he teamed up with a a, a dutch company called vendex international and they bought it and he went from the third largest bookstore chain to the first. And, and how long? That was, that's amazing. That was instant. That was pretty, that's pretty <laughs> as soon as he bought, uh, as soon as he bought Dalton, <laughs> right. uh, he leapt over, uh, Walden books at the time and he became number one and he never looked back. Wow. So from there, what, uh, I mean, he, it just kept growing. Uh, the, he, I guess he moved the offices to Fifth Avenue at some point. So how did he, how did he expand the company from there? Well, he grew it in a number of ways, uh, you know, um, expansion of, of uh, stores. But, you know, the big breakthrough came several years later when they started doing superstores. Right. Um, and that was the thing that he really grew. And ironically enough, uh, as the superstores grew, they were all branded Barnes and Noble, and over time they started phasing out the Dalton stores mm -hmm. to the point where today, if anybody looks for a Dalton, they will not find one. Yeah, right, right, yep, yeah. I remember there were two, often two bookstores in the mall. I imagine bookstores, you know, two more than one bookstore in right, a mall. Yeah. <laughs> well, malls so, had, you know, they had a Walden and they a had Walden a Dalton. And Dalton. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And now they don't have either one. Yes, exactly. So tell us a little bit more about his his. Role and what this retirement means maybe for Barnes & Noble, if anything. Well, the thing that's real interesting in, in this light is he gets most of the credibility or he gets most of the uh, spotlight for Barnes & Noble because it's sort of the sexy one. But he also founded uh, what turned into GameStop, which is, you know, still is, I believe, the largest video game retailer. Yes, yeah. And he took that public and spun it off. And then he also founded uh, Barnes & Noble College Bookstores. Okay, right. Um, which Barnes & Noble bought and then last year spun off. Right. So he really did start, uh, well, pretty much, you know, he was the big driver in three separate, you know, very successful um, retail chains that right. you know, pretty much everybody knows today. Wow, that's pretty. That's pretty impressive, especially how often uh, my son wants to go to GameStop. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty big. Yeah, no, he doesn't. He doesn't have anything. He never had much direct control over it recently because right. like said was, he spun it off. Um, he might have been on the board, but he didn't make too much active involvement. And then last year, they spun the college bookstores off to a, a separate public company. And now it's called Barnes & Noble Education. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's uh, he made quite a mark in the retail area. Now, will he still have some role in, in Barnes & Noble, or is, this, is he just stepping out? Of the uh, well, he's not going to have any day-to-day -day role. Right. Uh, come come September, that's when he's actually hanging him up. Uh, but he will still be their largest shareholder. Right, he's been the largest shareholder since you know, since the get-go, right. and he will still be on the board. Okay, but uh, you know when we were talking to him last week, he said he didn't want to be uh, a shadow chairman. Right, and so that the only time he would offer advice is if somebody asked for it. Right, and so what does this mean for Barnes and Noble as going forward? Well. I, I, well, we talked about to him. He, he was saying, you know, he'd been wanting to retire for a long time, but the time would never seem right. But now he thought that since the print business has settled down a bit and Barnes and Noble has settled down itself a little bit, right. that he, he felt it was, it was a, a good time to go. Yeah. You know, then they still have plenty of challenges. You know, they've been the Nook, you know, which was launched on his watch, right. was an early success, as right. we all might remember. And it was always a success from a device standpoint, but they just couldn't compete once Apple and Amazon really started ramping up the production of 
rereading devices and tablets right. and really started promoting it. Right. I mean, in the crucial Christmas selling season, when all three devices were going together, they got outspent by hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. Wow. And that, you know, that was it. You know, right. they had, they had all these expectations. They were going to sell all these Nook devices. They sold maybe less than half of what they would sell. Right. And then within, you know, three or four months, William Lynch, who was the CEO at the time, left and they started retooling. So now they're back to, somewhat back to the basics. I mean, they still are following this omni-channel approach, but, you know, the, the core trade bookstores are going to mm -hmm. be what, you know, drives this company forward if it's to have a, a, a life. Right, exactly, yeah. I mean, and those are often the only bookstores that are around other than uh, you know, some of the few independent bookstores. Right. I mean, they still have, you know, around 640 stores, and they are going to be opening in the fall, we're pretty sure, four concept stores. And they haven't really talked about what these are going to look like. Other than that, you know, they're going to somehow be different. Um, mm -hmm. And while there's a lot of speculation that would have followed the Amazon model, face out, that sort of thing, they've downplayed that and um, said, well, you know, we've been retailing for a long time. We think we know what we're going to do. Right. Um, we did see some plans for one of the concept stores being built in the New York area. And it looks like they want to create a piazza on the main floor that right. they'll maybe shelve the, the uh, books a little differently, maybe give some make it easier to browse and, and find the books. When we were talking to him, he said the, he thinks the key advantage bricks and mortar stores do have is the browsability factor. Right. You know, people walking off the, off the street and, you know, take their time and find the right book. Yep, it's true. It's true. And I, I often feel that way when I walk in. And it's been rarer and rarer that I do that. But it's a, it's a nice feeling kind of right, brings yeah. you back. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, so, and let's talk just a little bit about his philanthropy. I mean, uh, I think he he uh, was responsible or, or donated a lot to the DIA Art Center, I guess DIA Beacon. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was a big driver in that. I, he was on the board for a long time. Right. And he was, you know, a pretty prominent art collector. But, you know, um, I think the thing he seems to be proud of is after Katrina, he had a foundation that built over a hundred new houses down there. He owned a couple horses that mm. did pretty well. Um, he's pretty active in democratic politics, and he very interested in social causes. And he was a you know sort of a liberal, you could yeah, say. Right, right. <laughs> uh, I don't know. If he'd, I don't know if he'd term himself that, but he, maybe he would. Yeah. <laughs> or at least he seemed that way. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. A different exactly. kind of liberal, maybe. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely. You know, a fighter for the little guy. He was, you know, he's very loyal. Um, some people would say he was maybe loyal to a fault to uh, some of the folks over at Barnes and Noble. But, you know, if, if he backed you, you know, he backed you for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, he was obviously a huge powerhouse in the uh, bookselling industry. Yeah, no, he so. was definitely a lightning rod I mean, yeah. during the days yeah. when, you know, there's there two eras he really was big factor in. You know, the growth of the the the, the mall stores and the chains, which started to put a lot of the independent booksellers out of business, and then when they morphed into the superstores, right? You know, that was a whole new model of bookselling. That also puts um, some pressure on the independents. Right. So the independents and, and Len Riggio uh, were not always the best of friends. Although, when Amazon came along, they seemed to find a common enemy to they hide did. behind. Sure, sure. So. And uh, for for those of you uh, out there, you can uh, read Jim's article on Len Riggio in Publishers Weekly. Just go right to the site, search Len Riggio, and you're going to get lots of great information. Jim, thank you so much. Well, thanks for the plug. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another excellent segment. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast at iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 